Before we start this episode, I would like to mention the Masters of Motion Jobs Network. If you're looking for a new job or trying to hire a new recruit, I highly recommend checking out our Jobs Network. With over 30 jobs a month from some of Australia's and New Zealand's best studios. Find out more at mastersofmotion.com.au I'd also like to thank MSI Computers for supporting Masters of Motion and helping make this episode possible. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with Scott Gearson, the outstanding director at Substance. Scott started his career working in motion design before transitioning to VFX where he worked at companies such as Animal Logic, Digital Pictures and Cutting Edge as a compositor, flame artist and VFX supervisor before pivoting his career back to motion design and 3D. Scott then went on to start his own studio, Substance, where he's been creating high-end, visually creative and cinematic work for over 10 years. He's worked with well-known brands including McDonald's, Toyota, Foxtel and TEDx Sydney. Scott has won many awards and is highly respected within the industry. I've been looking forward to this one. Alrighty, let's get into it. Thanks very much, Scott, for taking the time out of your busy schedule and sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Big fan of the podcast. What are the important things that people should know before starting their own studio? It's very, very different to any other part of your design career before that stage. You know, even being a, a senior designer or, or running a design department inside another studio that, that's not your own, it's still something very, very different because there's so much even then that you don't have to deal with. Yep. So, when you take on your own studio, it's much less about actual design and so much more about the, you know, admin communicating with people, you know, being the advocate of the team, being the point of contact for the client and ultimately being on the tools a whole lot less. What are the main challenges that people face when running their own studio? It can be really easy to focus too much on the work and not enough on the business itself. And, and by that I mean, you know, projects come in, you do the projects, they take up a lot of your time and attention, and then another project comes in and, and you do that, you do the same thing, you focus on the project, and you're not looking at the, the bigger picture of, okay, well, where's the studio going? How is it, um, you know, how is it developing? Um, all of these kinds of things. So, it's, it's being able to to zoom out yep. um, can be difficult sometimes because there's so much to focus on each day. When you started out, what was your main challenge that you were trying to overcome? When you first start out, you probably, a lot of designers are going to be doing this, you know, after a freelance career and that's what they're known for. They're known for being able to deliver, deliver something themselves rather than being able to, you know, manage a team. So people will start coming to you with those smaller, smaller scale of projects 
it can be difficult to then, you know, hand that off to a team uh, because the budgets might not be there. Um, it's just something that you have to kind of slowly chip away at. What mistakes studio owners make when they are getting started or growing as a business? Potentially a mistake is saying yes to too many things. Um, you know, a project comes in and you just you say, yes, we'll do that. And then another project comes in, you say, yes, we'll do that one too. And you want to do it all. And then you eventually end up, you know, overworked and burnt out. And you might not be working on the things that you want to work on because you you could be maybe too worried about having enough to keep things going. Yep. So definitely a mistake is um, saying yes to too many things. All right. So I'm going to just briefly ask you about compositing. What makes a good compositor? You have to have a very high attention to detail, like incredible attention to detail, because people are constantly going to be evaluating your work. You know, does this look real? Like, is this um, is the quality on this high enough? Have have you missed a, a pixel somewhere? Um, so yeah, attention to detail and and a very high technical proficiency. And when it comes to doing commercial compositing for like TVCs and high end brand content, what's the key to being a good compositor in that environment? Being able to work in a way that's um, like clear, clearly laid out, neat, uh, annotated, um, makes sense, follows the conventions of whatever the studio is that you're at, because you're going to be part of a, a team. Um, it's, it's very rare that you'll be an individual compositor. There are a lot of individual motion designers and not so many individual compositors. You're always working on a project with many other compositors. So being able to you know, pick up each other's shots and, and hand things off is, is a very, very important thing. And what about when you're using Flame? Isn't that more an individual thing, compositing in Flame? It is in that uh, a lot of the time, you know, you're in that room by yourself with, you know, a whole bunch of agency people watching you do the work and you're, you can be solely responsible for creating shots and things. Yep. On the other hand, just because of the nature of Flame, jobs will move from suite to suite all the time and you could be working on you know whatever it is a, a mcdonald's job you could be working on that for a day and you've set up 10 shots but then the next day that job might have to be in a different suite with a different artist what tv movies music magazines inspired you when you were growing up uh, a lot of cartoons um the thundercats title sequence um and then you know then there were others like um uh, there was a show called the lost cities of gold um, Kimber the White Lion, um, a really strange space show called called Ulysses. These are all cartoons, by the way. Okay. Um, and you know, not not to say that you know when I was five years old, I was into title sequences. Like, not that at all. Um, just that um, the parts of those things that I loved the most were those the openings and the songs. Um, and I, you know, I don't remember any of the episodes, but I remember those opening sequences. You know, even now. So um, yeah, cartoons a lot. Old movies like Alice in Wonderland or The NeverEnding Story was, was a really, really big impact on my, um, my young life. Yep. And, you know, later on then things like, um, I guess, you know, Back to the Future and, um, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Like that's that kind of interesting cinematic tricks. And a lot of the stuff that you do is cinematic. Were you interested in movie making when you were growing up? Definitely, yeah. I Before I discovered design, I mean, obviously, I, I knew about film and cinema and, and I was very, very much drawn to that. Um, and so, you know, I, during school, I was trying to learn how to do, um, you know, film photography and, and develop my own film. And, um, you know, I had ideas, you know, maybe one day I'd be able to work in movies in some way. I didn't know what, but um, it was definitely an area that, that interested me for sure. 
When did you discover motion design and compositing, and how did you become so passionate about it? It was in school, uh, actually. I, I knew that I wanted to do design, um, but back then, I, you know, I was thinking graphic design. Uh, I was thinking about things like making CD covers or, you know, uh, that, that kind of graphic design because I, I didn't know what else there was. And I, I think it was, I don't know, like midway through school, I, I started seeing um, the one. The one I remember is seeing the titles for uh, the movie Gattaca. Yeah. Um, and then it was after that, I think almost straight after that, and I went and got out a bunch of videos or something. It was after Gattaca that I saw the titles for Seven. Um, even though Seven came out before Gattaca, I, I saw them, you know, back to front um, on, on VHS. Um, and those kind of those two things kind of said to me, OK, well, there's a different kind of design out there. Um, and being, you know, always being interested in, in film and then being interested in design, it was combining these two areas. So I started trying to find out more, uh, whatever I could about, you know, this weird little niche area of, of filmmaking. A lot of the best motion designers and creative directors come from a design background. Yeah, it's interesting that you started out doing graphic design. My uh, university degree was was a graphic design degree. You know, not so much. Um, I actually don't think back then they had such a thing as an animation degree. We we had animation components that, that we could select, you know, like electives. Uh, but it was very much a traditional graphic design degree. Uh, yeah. Some of my uni lecturers were the kinds of people that had done typesetting with with actual pieces of lead type, uh, which sounds really really ancient. But um, that's just to give you an idea of like how traditionally graphic design it, it was. It'd be great if you could briefly describe your career path. So I started out with a degree in uh, visual communications at, at UTS here in Sydney, um, and then went from that uh, into full time at studios like uh, Digital Pictures and Animal Logic, doing uh, motion design, you know, motion graphics. But it was during that time that I started learning more about um, this this VFX software called Flame. Uh, because that's where the you know the biggest and the best commercials were happening. So I started leaning more towards visual effects. I was working at students uh, studios like like Method, um, and eventually got myself into kind of a dual position. I was fifty percent a design director and fifty percent a flame artist. Yeah, and then decided to just go full on VFX. Um, so you know, moving on to to another studio, I was a full time visual effects supervisor for a while. Um, and then, you know, this is getting on many years. Um, I, I was tired of working full time. Um, so I went freelance for a little bit and that was, you know, doing a mix of motion design, title sequences, a whole bunch of visual effects, um, then got tired of that. And that's when I started Substance. Over the years, which projects do you think were the most successful or satisfied you the most? Recently, uh, the, the ones for TEDx have been, you know, a big standout for us they're very creatively satisfying um, we really get to you know stretch ourselves on it um, and I, I think they connect with people really really well really well have you had any failures or setbacks in your career and what did you learn from them yeah i think i have i think i've had a lot of fa failures in my career my, i think i have um, a lot of the jobs that i was working in uh ended up being uh you know a little bit of a trap that, that you, you can get stuck in and it's, it's very hard to get out of and move on or move up. Yeah. Um, so, it's, you know, it's not like failures like deleting a job accidentally or, or getting a budget or a timeline wrong. You know, those those things can be overcome. Yeah. The things that, that have a much longer lasting impact um, or can do a lot of damage um, is when you know, when, when you don't know 
when something's not working and, and you don't know that it's time to move on. Do you feel like you've learnt when to move on these days? I think I do know that now. I hope I know that now. Uh, but it took a very, very long time to, to learn that. Cool. All right. Excellent answer. How did your career change over the 10-year period you worked in post-production companies? Started out focusing on motion design. Uh, and then it slowly twisted towards visual effects. And then it, it kind of stuck there for a little bit. And then it eventually came back to moving image design. Why do you think you uh, changed from motion design to VFX? Partly a desire to work on, you know, bigger and better projects. Um, back when I started out in, in motion design, um, it, it was very much, you know, After Effects. Um, it, it, was, it was motion graphics. It was, it was animated graphic design. Um, and there was only so much you, you could do back then. And I would see um, much bigger, much more interesting projects, those kind of cinematic projects that, you know, that I'd been interested in um, as, as I was growing up. They were going through different systems and a lot of them were, were much more visual effects based. So I thought, okay, well, I need, to, I need to learn this. You know, they don't teach you visual effects in a graphic design degree at university. So on the job, started learning more visual effects and, and just kind of um, went down that path for, for quite a long time. What was the biggest thing you learned in that period of working in large, old-school post-production houses as a flame artist? The part of that job where you develop more, I think, um, is that you're, you're basically designing com and compositing and animating live with an audience of people behind you every single day, mostly art directors, copywriters, um, producers from ad agencies watching what you do. So there's a lot of pressure. You have to be able to get your work done, but you also have to keep all those people entertained you have to fend off their crazy requests uh, because you, you know you can't just say yes to everything even if you're the only one in the room there's no you know you don't have a producer with you you have to be able to manage their expectations um, you know let them know what can and can't be done in a way where they feel like they're still getting everything that they want yep. um, non-stop from from 9am to 6pm um, it, it can be really really brutal but you learn how to how to manage a huge range of, of people. When you're working closely with these clients uh, on a project, what's the key to keeping it on track and not letting the project blow out of control? It's not losing focus of, of the bigger picture. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of, of clients, when they're sitting there, they can get bogged down in the the, the, minute, the minutia of the, the details of, of what a particular shot is doing. And it's it's reminding them that, okay, let's look at the big picture. Let's look at this, yeah. you know, the, the whole commercial overall. How is what we're doing fitting into the commercial overall? And is it helping us achieve our goal, whatever, whatever that is, selling more hamburgers or, um, or whatever it is? And, and if you can remind them of that, then you can get them out of that little rut of, you know, focusing too much on um, is, is that color of blue in that shot the, the exact kind of blue? So let's talk about the modern day flame. Yep. What's its strengths and weaknesses? And is it a useful tool now? And will it be a useful tool in the future? I think it still has, uh, it still has its use cases. It still is used a lot at a lot of post houses. Um, the role of it has slightly changed um, a little bit in that it, now it is much more focused on, um, on finishing, on bringing together, you know, a whole lot of different edits and, and all the final bits and pieces, the, the visual effects shots, the audio, and it's much less about doing, you know, live design and, and live compositing because there, there are now 
there are better places where that can happen. Yeah. So it, it still has a it has a very important place in the post production pipeline. Um, it's a much less creative place than it used to be, and that, that was one of the reasons that I eventually decided to move away from it. Cool. I think a lot of people don't understand that, and I think it's really good that we covered it. A lot of people don't even know what it is, to be honest. Well, you know, I say, oh, I used to be a flame artist. And they say, like, what's that? I had someone ask me once, like, oh, you're a fire dancer. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't go to raves and twirl fire. But, yeah, a lot of people haven't heard of it because it, it has a particular place in post-production and in advertising. It's much more an advertising tool and much less of a, you know, a motion design tool. Yeah. So, now that we're working more in motion design, we, we're coming across a lot of clients that just haven't ever heard of it. <laughs> That's sort of funny. I, I can picture you as a flamethrower. I, oh, I, I can't. Ah! Uh, no, I'm only kidding. Um, <laughs> what led you to start doing VFX supervising? I loved watching the, you know, the behind the scenes on, on DVDs back when that was still a thing. And I would say, you know, how did they put these these blue screens together? You know, when you watch The Matrix, how did they do those things that they did in The Matrix? I wanted to know that. So, yeah. um, once you start going down that rabbit hole, that, that leads you in, into kind of visual effects su- supervising, which is um, being able, you know, how do, how do you plan to shoot visual effects shots um, and shoot for things that are not there at the time that you're shooting? And I think it gets you out of the office as well. It does. It gets you away from the computer, which which was always a nice bonus um, to not be in front of the computer for a day or several days. Um, I mean, that said, it, VFX supervising is, is hard work. It's being out on set is not a holiday. Yeah. Um, and you almost have to be continually switched on even more than, than when you're in the studio. Because if you turn around for a second, someone will shoot something the wrong way and then, you know, you'll get the blame or your post house will get the blame. I always found it really exciting and really exhilarating doing it. Uh, by the end, that when I went home, I felt pumped, you know. Uh, so, you don't get that when you're sitting in front of a computer. Don't you? I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it depends what I'm watching. <laughs> what are the important things that people need to know when starting out in VFX supervising? I don't think there's any such thing as a junior visual effects supervisor. Um, like visual effects supervisor is where you get to after you've been, you know, doing it for, for a very, very long time. Yeah. You need to know about the whole um, 3D pipeline. You need to know about cameras. You need to know about lenses. You need to know about lights. Um, you need to know how to gather all the right data on on shots. And it can be a bit of a catch-22 because, I mean, like a lot of the time, how do you learn that kind of stuff unless you're unless you get the opportunity to do it and you don't get the opportunity to do it until you can prove that you've that you've already done it. Um, so I think yeah, getting if you if you want to start out in visual effects supervising, um, try to do it on things like um, you know uh, short films or music videos where the stakes are are not so high. Yeah, um, you can build up a you know a little bit of experience in that area. As a VFX supervisor, what are some of the particular tips you can give to people to make a shoot run smoothly? And it's it's a, it's an interesting role because you're at one, on one hand you're working for um, the the post-production company and you need to make sure that everything's being done in a way that um, the post-production company can can do the job on time and in budget but you're also working for you know the director and the production company and the client because you're trying to help them capture the things that, that they want to capture and they want you know they want their job to come in on time and on budget um, and 
figuring out a way to make those two things align. Um, you know, when the director or the client says, well, how about we do this instead? And it was never in the plan. You can't just say, no, we can't do that. That's impossible. You need to say, you know, things like, um, okay, well, here are the options. We've got option A and we can do this and this and it will take this long. Or we've got option B and, and it will cost maybe, you know, this much more money. Is that something that you want to do? Yeah. Um, and being able to, to wrangle them, you know, in a way that makes you able to do your job, but also, um, you know, yeah, not necessarily the person that's always saying no, no, no. How organised are you and what sort of things do you take to the uh, shoot? Uh, yeah, you have to be super organized because things can change at, at the drop of a hat. The, you know, shoot schedule can change. The weather can change. Yeah. Um, so, you know, an accident could happen that means that everything is thrown out of order. So, you need to have, um, you know, all of your equipment there, everything ready to go, um, you know, at, at the drop of a hat. And um, I guess as much equipment as possible um, because you don't know what's going to come up. So, we're going to move on to multidiscipline. Artist. Do you like that? Multidiscipline, not generalist? Multidiscipline. is what I call it, but yes. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so I saw you talk at, at Node and you were anti-generalist. Why is that? I wouldn't say anti-generalist. I, I would say, like, your generalist is, is, is great. I've been a generalist, generalist for, you know, a lot of my career. Yeah. But um, I think it's important to still have some some deep areas of skill within that kind of broader area of, of generalization so yeah the, the, the node talk talks about being a, a t-shaped designer having having a wide base but having um you know one or more areas of, of deep knowledge within that um, will make you you know much more effective at what you do you were working both as a designer motion designer and a visual effects artist what do you think the disadvantages of that was I always kind of felt like whatever post-production company I was working for, I didn't quite fit in. And a lot of the time they didn't know what to do with me because I, you know, I had ambitions in, in both area. I wanted to do, you know, a lot of amazing motion design and I could, um, and I, you know, I wanted to do that, but then I also wanted to do the visual effects. Um, and a lot of the post-production studios, they just, they want to give you a job title. Like they want to call you a designer. They want to sit you in the design department or they want to call you a compositor and sit you in the compositing department. And I was always saying, you know, but no, why can't I do this and this? And why can't I, why can't I combine these two things? Like, I can do the motion design on this and I can composite it. Why don't you just let me do both things? And they would say, but that's not your job. And they wouldn't know, um, you know, how to deal with me. What are the advantages when you come out, when you're working on your own projects? Being able to work on the things that creatively satisfy you. So in my case, it was being able to combine those two areas, which I always felt I, I wasn't able to effectively combine in any full-time job. Cool. When did you set out to learn 3D and what software and renderers did you start on? I think I had a very good handle on, you know, the process, how long things took, um, how they worked. I just wasn't, I didn't have the hands-on ability myself. Um, and I, I felt like that should be something that, that I should know more about if I'm going to be taking on, you know, entire projects that have a heavy 3D component. I, you know, I've never been the kind of person that, that directs, wanted to direct a job um, and not understand the, the full implications 
of anything that I'm, I'm asking anyone to do. Um, you know, how long it's going to take or is it even possible? Um, I, I don't like directors that, that are like that. Yeah. So, being able to, being able to teach myself um, is, is more about making myself, a, you know, a more effective director, a more effective team leader. Also, just having, you know, that little bit more empathy for for your team and what your team is going through sometimes on some projects. Yep. You know, when, when you appreciate how how hard it can be to do it yourself, then, you know, you appreciate what someone else is, is doing on the project. Well, what was the software and renderers that you learned? Um, I, I mostly learned on Cinema 4D it's just because it, it seemed the easiest thing to pick up. It seemed the most common motion design tool as well. Um, I mean, many, many, many years ago, I tried to learn Maya. Um, you know, like my very first design job, I, I opened up Maya and I think I, I got, I was scared off for 10 years yeah. or something before, you know, before coming back. So, yeah, started with Cinema 4D, um, started with, with Octane um, and then, you know, eventually brought on Redshift as well. What are the main challenges that you had to overcome to develop your 3D skills as an artist? It was mostly time because it, you know, substance was was kind of a thing at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, I was I was freelancing a lot. I was also starting to take ownership of a lot more projects. So when I when I was teaching myself three D, it was a time aspect for sure. What sort of things did you use to teach yourself? A lot of Google and a lot of YouTube. Any particular sites? Grayscale Gorilla, um, <laughs> I think everyone's looked at, at at one point in their lives. Yeah. Some videos from from Linda or one of those places. I, um, you know, some Tim Clapham tutorials. Um, they're they're great. So yeah. Once you did those tutorials, you started trying to solve problems, and that's how you taught yourself. Yeah, I, the way that I approached three D was very much um, task oriented like you know i didn't sit down and think okay i'm going to learn what what all the buttons do in cinema 4d i would sit down and i think okay well i want to create a shot where this happens yeah what things do i need to know to make this particular thing happen and i would learn just those particular skills and i would ignore yeah. everything everything else in cinema 4d but it helped me to do the one thing that i wanted to do so and then you know you keep doing that rinse and repeat um, and eventually you, you pick up more and more aspects of the software what would you say to like motion designers who are 2D based who want to do 3D? What advice would you have for them? I would say start learning it right now. Don't don't put it off. Don't be scared of it in any way um, because it's heaps of fun. You, you can create anything that you want to create. And, you know, for it, it opens up so many possibilities. What do you think about awards and has winning awards like helped you get clients or substance get more work how's it affected you they're nice to have they do make you feel good um no one's ever called us up and said hey you know we saw you won such and such an award please do our amazing project that's never happened as a business outside the feel good factor what are the practical uses of having awards when, it, when a client comes to you and says, you know, do, does Substance know what they're doing? We can say, well, yes, we do. And here's a very long track record of awards to, to prove that. It's also a great tool for marketing yourself to freelancers and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, that, that too, for sure. Um, there, there isn't an aspect of that. I, I, I'm glad that you feel warm inside. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yes, it's, 
um, it's it's no it's nice. But on the other hand, you know, each award comes with um, uh, the the cost of paying yeah. all the fees to belong to those associations and to and to enter the awards itself. Do you mind if we stop now for a break? Sure. So I can thank my sponsors. Yeah, go for it. If you're looking for a fantastic mobile workstation that is designed for the entertainment and creative industries, whether it's for processing complex 3D or 2D workflows in design, multimedia, illustration, animation, CG or visual effects, MSI's high-end mobile laptops provide one of the best solutions available for creative professionals. You can find out more at MSI. All right, Scott, have you got a drink and are you ready to go? Yep, let's do it. What led you to start up your own studio? I just wanted to do a a lot more. And the only way for me that that was going to be possible was if I, as if I turned substance into a studio. Um, and then, I mean, also it was a little bit of a life choice. Um, it it did time roughly with my first child being born, which, you know, which is a heck of a thing to do, like have a child and start a studio at the same time. Um, but you know, I mainly, I I wanted to be more in control of of my own destiny. I I didn't want to be locked to someone else's timelines or budgets all the time. I I wanted to be able to say no to something if I wanted to. Um, Having a kid and starting a studio, that's a crazy time. In the same year, yeah. How did you get started as a studio and market yourself to establish your client base? I mean, initially, I, I didn't do a lot of marketing at all. Um, a, a lot of the work that, that came into Substance was was word of mouth, yeah. um, which which is a you know a nice position to be in. It's 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 lucky. And as a flame artist, having met so many you know art directors and, and creative directors from from ad agencies, um, I, I knew a lot of people. You know, once word got around that I was doing that, um, a lot of people just kind of naturally um, decided to to give Substance a go, which you know I'm very grateful for. It'd be great if you could describe your role and what you do at Substance. I'm the you know the the studio owner, but I'm also um, the the director. Yeah, combination you know studio manager, studio owner. I do a little bit of producing myself too, yeah. um, and you know directing the jobs, wearing a lot of hats. As a studio owner, you're always wearing a lot of hats. It doesn't matter how big you are. True, true. What makes Substance different from other studios? I think, you know, most other studios are out here to make some, you know, amazing visuals and, and they do it really, really well. Um, you know, we're here to really get inside a story, yeah. find out, you know, what, what is the spark inside a story that connects with people and what's the best way to, to tell that story? What's the best way to show it? What are the main challenges for Australian studios at the moment? Honestly, I think it's budgets. Um, we have a smaller population and that just necessarily means that budgets are, are smaller for a lot of jobs. Can you talk about how COVID has affected your business and the way you work as a virtual studio? Uh, we, we do, um, you know, some visual effects work still, um, you know, we don't often publish it, but we, we do still do it. And that side of things has, has dried up a little bit, obviously, because people can't shoot as much work. Yeah. But we, Substance has been a remote first studio um, since it was started. So we were, you know, developing remote workflows long before COVID was, was ever a thing. Um, so in that respect, it's, it's business as usual for us. Could you describe your pipeline? What software, what hardware and what renderers do you use? 
Yeah, I mean, look, the pipeline is uh, whatever the job needs, really. Yep. It's super typical. It's um, yeah, Here, there's a mix of PCs and Macs, and the jobs are a mix of um, Cinema 4D and Houdini. Um, and it, even in you know inside a single job, we'll mix shots from Octane and shots with, Red, with Redshift, well, whatever makes that shot look the best and, and is the easiest to work with. And what sort of software do you use to manage your projects? It, a lot of it just runs through Slack as, as kind of the default communication tool. Yep. Um, you know, on, on this end, there's various, you know, spreadsheets and timelines and, and things like that. But, you know, dealing with, with all the artists, uh, a lot of it is just Slack. When you're putting a crew together for a job, what level of experience do you look for and what sort of skills are you after? Um, we hire we hire a lot of senior designers, senior senior artists. We don't hire a lot of junior people just because of the nature of the, the projects that we're doing. What do you think the benefits are of hiring Pacific freelancers over having long-term full-time staff? It's putting together a team that, that suits the project perfectly. And I, I don't believe that you can always do that based on, you know, a range of full-time employees. And when, you, when that's the case, a lot of your projects will tend to become suited to the team that you have on hand yep. rather than is very different to putting together a team that, that suits the project. Tell us about why you're interested in opening titles and what are the challenges and benefits of working on them? I've been interested in in titles for for a long time since since I saw things like Gattaca and Seven in in high school. So once I got my first junior motion designer job, I, I started looking for ways to get involved with them. And you know, a lot of the time, that's just you know, if one comes into the company that you happen to be working with, putting your hand up and saying like, I really really want to be involved yep. with with that. One of your earlier feature title sequences, Tomorrow When the War Begins. How did you initially go about winning the work for title sequences and has it evolved since then? Um, it was one of those projects where something came into the studio um, and, and you know, I put my hand up and said, well, we should do something for this. Yep. So at the time, the, the studio that I was working for, they were doing all the visual effects for the movie. But um, there was no there was no title sequence planned at, at all for, for that film, and as the design director, um, I kind of went to the you know the, the executive producer of, of, the, of the movie and, and the producer um, and the director, and I I managed to get in front of them and start pitching how I thought a title sequence could help the film, and they you know they agreed. Since then, what sort of titles have you worked on? Just you know, mainly titles for mainly titles for the Australian film industry, um, and and things like that. And is it hard to get Australian feature title work? Yeah, yes and no. Um, I mean, there's there's a decent amount of it in Australia. It depends whether or not you want to do it because the budgets are often not there. So it's it does become a creative decision. You know, do you yeah do you say yes to it and um, and then struggle to deliver something you know that's a quality that you'd be happy with yeah um, or do you, you know, maybe let this one pass this time so why did you start looking for and working on major conference opening title sequences and creative award title sequences in australia it's it's hard to get as many title sequences as, as we would like but um, if you know if what we have to deal with is is what's available in Australia, and 
and what's here is is not a lot, then what else can we do? Yeah. And you know, the, one of the big answers to that was, well, there is there are a lot of other things that need title sequences. There's there's a lot of conferences and there's some award shows. So let's hit them up and see whether or not you know there's a there's a market for that. Just explain to us the differences between doing a conference opener and an award show. It's yeah. I mean, it's it's different for it's different for award shows and 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 conferences. They're they're two very very different things. Um, the the award shows, you know, you, you get a very open brief and can do basically whatever you want. So the challenge is is containing it to, yeah, a, a restricted timeline. That means you you know you're not going to blow your budget. You're not going to be working on this for too long. Okay. Um, and then on the other hand, the conferences can be because the conferences have a specific theme or or a specific point. The challenge there is is how to get across, you know, so their, their broad topic area, you know, in a, in a succinct kind of way. Now we're going to move on to talk about two projects in depth. Oh, yeah. Uh, first, we're going to start off with the ACO. Yeah. And then we're going to move on to the TED conferences. Mm. I highly recommend that you stop the podcast now. Go to mastersofmotion.com.au, look in the podcast section and watch both the ACO and the TED projects. It'll make this section of the podcast much more rewarding and enjoyable. Alrighty, let's get back into it. So I just want to talk about your other big collaboration project, the ACO, uh, which, what does that stand for? The Australian Chamber Orchestra. Can you tell us how did you win that project and what's the story behind the brief uh, and the concept? That project came to us um, through an agency called Moffat Moffat. Uh, they've been looking after the ACO for, for quite a few years um, and they wanted to do something different for to launch their 2020 season. So a lot of their past work had been about uh, portraits of the musicians with their instruments and, and that kind of stuff. And yeah. So instead of just showing the musicians and, and, the, instru- and the instruments, they wanted to show um, more about the music and the emotion behind the music and the stories within the music. So um, we were asked to come up with um, a range of, of motion pieces that would summarize the the music and the ideas and the the composer and all of this kind of stuff for um, a range of of hand-picked pieces of music chosen by ACO musicians. Okay, can you explain how you crewed this project and why you picked international artists to collaborate with? The ACO is is made up of like a whole range of, of international musicians that have, have now come to call, um, you know, Australia and, and Sydney their home. And the pieces of music are pieces of music from all around the world. And so we thought that a really good way to, to tackle that would be, you know, in the, the same method for the execution, reaching out to yeah. uh, different design directors around the world and getting them to interpret these pieces of music as well. Who were the artists you picked to work on the project? So the final crew for the project was three guys and three women. Uh, we had Nidia Diaz from Portugal, Martina Stiftinger from the UK, Helen Sue from Beijing, Rich Nosworthy from NZ, uh, and here in Australia we had Rory McLean and then also myself on the tools for this one. Wow, that's an amazing lineup. Yeah. Okay. Just to explain what these animations look like, yeah. they're basically different materials, wood, uh, flowers, feathers abstract animations that move to the music mm. it's high-end creative 3d and effects uh looks fantastic they, they actually look quite consistent as a group almost 
<laughs> I think that's because we're all, I mean, we're all using a lot of the same software and a lot of the same render engines. So there is, there's a little bit of that aspect to it. But I mean, part of that is also the, the brief. We, we wanted things to, to look cinematic, to have a, you know, very concrete tactility to them. Um, you know, the, the, it, it's, the images are designed to intrigue you and to make you want to know more about about what it is that you're seeing so the you know you, you see these things you want to touch them you you want to you want to interact with them all that kind of stuff so it's very much a style that we're aiming for you, you delivered multiple pieces mm-hmm. and but i want to talk about the one that uh, substance put together i know that you've overseen them all but the 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 flower 3d b mm-hmm. um is it a b it's a it's a beetle a beetle. It's very artistic in its colouring. How did you come up with the flower and the colouring and, mm. and and get that look happening in 3D? A lot of these, uh, the animations for, for the ACO um, had a big element of experimentation to them. We, we wanted to create things that were a little bit more unusual or that hadn't quite been seen before. Like I said, visually intriguing images so we started doing some r&d into flowers and plants and things because the piece of music that substance had is called song of the earth um or or das lied von der erde in german um the from a german composer and it's you know it's about it's about flowering gardens and spring and life and death and and all this kind of stuff so so we went down the path of, of flowers and we were trying out um you know different uh different ways of, of representing them that weren't so literal so different textures, different lighting techniques, and and we landed on this approach where um, everything uh, everything in that piece is made uh, out of gold, okay. and the the colours are actually uh, reflected lights. So there's the the light, all the colours in that they're not actually in the textures on the objects themselves. It's it's all reflected light. Got water and ants and and. Uh Little water, yeah, the water drops and the, and their little ants and things. It was that was a lot of fun to to put those little things in there. Yeah, it was, we're thinking of ways to bring it to life. Did you hand animate those spiders and ants and water droplets, or how did you go about doing the movement? Yeah, so I mean, things like the the water droplets is, is like the water droplet is just a distorted sphere on a path. Yeah. Um, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, the the ant um, has a little walk cycle, and it just it just walks in a straight line. Um, but that's all it needs to do. You know, the beetle flaps its wings, and we can make it fly through the air. We're looking for ways to get to get some impact in there, the most time effective way that we could. And and when you modelled the models, mm-hmm. did you scan specific flowers, or did you do you have like stock reference that you were using? How did you go about creating those unique models? It's a, it's a mix of both. Um, so there, there. I think I'm pretty sure there are one or two in there that are uh, were, were stock models of, of flowers. The for the you know the ones that didn't need to do a lot. Other ones are created um, you know almost procedurally yeah. um, where we have. Um, you know, uh, cloners that are they're just cloning the the petals or the the little bits of pollen. Um, you know, cloning them round and round and round in circles, and some of them were created a little bit more manually, where like the blooming iris or, or hibiscus or whatever it is. Um, you know, that that's a series of hand animated petals that are you know keyframed to to bend in that particular way. So a mix of techniques. Cool. There's a lot of color variations on your. You imagine a million buds of the flower. And then each one has its different color variation. Did you design that up beforehand or did you do experimentations with the lights? 
yeah, a, lo- a lot of experimentation with with the lights. Um, I mean, there's there is a there's a, is a specific kind of color palette going on. There's like I think most shots have a um, like a purple light and a blue light and a, and another warm light. But um, as to where they where they're placed, um, it, it was just trying out a lot of things and seeing you know which uh, which had the, the the most pleasing effect. And the inside of the the flower looks like a whole lot of wires, mm. like a whole like a ball of wires opening. The protea, yeah, I think that's that one. Yeah, it looks unflower like. Unflower <laughs> like, but it still I mean, looks like a flower. It, it, um, it is yeah. that is what the flower looks like in real life. But I guess when you when you stylize it to that extent, when you make it out of gold and and put it in that really stylized environment, um, yeah, it kind of abstracts it a little bit. Yeah, just to finish up the final edit. How did you go about editing it? Did you create a whole lot of different play bar shots and then edit it out or did you finish a whole lot of stuff and then edit it out? How did you go about getting the final edit to the music? Definitely has to work with that particular piece of music. So it's, it was, it's partly driven by the music and partly driven by, you know, we were looking for some sort of, of progression yeah. um, of shots as, as we move through. You know, we weren't sure which flower was, was going to be at which moment, but um, it, it's supposed to start out, um, you know, as if dawn is breaking and the flowers are, are opening up. And then we see this drop of dew and the drop of dew takes us on a journey, you know, down a stem and, and off a leaf and past these little touches of life the the insects yep. takes us past the spider takes us past the the ant and then the flowers are you know interacting in a um in in, in other interesting ways so there is a there's a very loose narrative in there but it, it all it also just meant to be like a just a nice visual feast um, of interesting shots all right cool Let's now move on to the next project discussion. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the conference opening titles you did for TED from 2017 through to 2020. Sure. Okay, let's start with the initial one. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about the brief and the story and the concept behind TEDx Sydney? Yeah, so the, the TED conferences, a lot of them around the world have title sequences. The, you know, the big one, the main TED in Vancouver in Canada, um, has, has you know some amazing title sequences, um, and TEDx Sydney had had been doing some um, conferences with with title sequences um, for for a few years, um, and we you know as I, I said before in Australia you have to look for more title sequence opportunities because there may not be enough around for uh, we we were looking for more title sequences and um, happened to uh, meet up with uh, one of the fellows that was. Uh, running TEDx Sydney's brand, yeah. um, and they at the time they were looking for for someone to partner with um, for the the motion component for the conference, and so it was this this being in the right place at the right time that that led to us uh, pitching for and, and and winning the very first one back at, that we did back in 2017. And the one in 2017, how many shots and what's the duration, uh, and how many <laughs> sort of credits do you have, just roughly? It's a two-minute title sequence. It probably has something like fifty shots in it. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> That's all right. And um, what was the brief from TED? The purpose of the TEDx title sequences is to communicate to the audience what the theme um, of, of the event is that year. Every year, their their event is based around um, a concept. So uh, that very first one, um, the concept was uh, called unconventional. So all of their talks and their speakers were, were, you know, tangentially related to to that theme. So it's it's you know 
everyone's come into the auditorium. The, the five thousand, six thousand people are sitting down in in this in the dark yeah. um, at you know the International Convention Center, which is a huge, huge auditorium, and the lights go down, and it's about introducing them to the the theme of the day. And what size do you uh, do you make the file? Is it two K or is it HD? The first one was HD, um, but it's, it's projected very, very large in the auditorium. And, and so what was the creative process like? How did you develop the first original concepts? TEDx is uh, it's, it's a little bit un- unusual um, in how projects run in that um, we get the theme uh, well ahead of time. And there's plenty of time to kind of write down notes and, and jot down ideas and kind of slowly chip away at the concept before you get to that, you know, period where you have to actually um, block out, you know, the amount of time to actually build the thing. Yeah. And having that, you know, for a, for, for a topic like that, for such a broad, uh, a broad brief that, that those are, it's good to have that amount of time to think about it beforehand. Yep. And do you write a written treatment? Uh, we do. Mainly to, I mean, the first one was was different uh, because it was the beginning of the relationship. So the the first one was styled a little bit more as a pitch and, and less as a treatment to say, well, this is what we would like to do if if you will, you know, work with substance as your motion partner. Yeah. Um, but then following that, you know, they they've been so happy with what we do that the following, uh, you know, any any presentation that we do to Ted on on the subsequent title sequences were more along the lines of, okay, well, this is this is what we we think would, would make a good sequence for this particular theme. You were following on from... Yeah, it's, it's not... Um, the, the first one was more of a pitch and less of a treatment. Then how did the process go on the following ones? The subsequent ones, um, they've basically, you know, given us a, a, an open brief to <laughs> produce whatever, whatever we want. And do you, like, schedule out the creative process with them and touch in with them and, and, and get approvals as you go? It, it, runs, it runs the same as any other project would, would run. Um, like I said, the timeline is, is a little bit more extended than, you know, your normal TV commercial or, or something like that. But, um, yeah, 100%, there's, there's check-ins with, okay, well, here's, here's the concept, here's the strategy. Um, okay, now here's, um, you know, some, some loose boards and, and this is the basic progression of, of where we want to go. Okay, now here's, a, you know, some animation whips, you know, how are you guys feeling about this and that. It, it's still a very standard kind of process. Let's talk about the 2019 version of the giant spaceship and the bees. Yeah. Could you explain how you responded to the 2019 theme of the TED conference? So the, the 2019 theme was, was legacy, and we interpret that, interpreted that to be, the, you know, the, what is the legacy of, of humankind? Is it going to be a legacy of, of destruction or is it going to be a legacy of, of preservation? So we took the, the view that we had um, the humankind... Um, had preserved as, as much of our, you know, history and culture and as much of the natural environment as we could uh, yeah. on a, a space arc <laughs> uh, floating above the, the planet. This is full, you know, full of seeds, full of um, frozen samples, full of, you know, paintings and, and literature and, and art history. And it was all up there, you know, preserved for forever in case or, you know, for, for whatever reason, something had happened to the world below basically have a lot of bees and paintings and then you're very fixated on the bees i like the bees (laughs) i do they look really cool and you've got drawers and and different things and then you you don't know what it is and then eventually you see that it's an arc uh when you reveal the planet earth below 
Yes. And you have like a whole heap of images in the script that you need to uh, put together. Yep. Like a seed bank and a spaceship and 20 other high-end images. Yep. How do you go about the process of developing the story visually? There's a lot of, you know, R&D. Um, there's um, figuring out what we want to say and how we want to say it and then what images are going to help us tell that story. You know, we can start putting together um, mood boards of, of things. So, you know, for that TEDx19 one with the, the spaceship and the it's, you know, it's very science fiction, yeah. um, gathering, you know, as much reference material as, as we can from those sorts of things. Like what does the the seed vault at Svalbard in uh, in green in Greenland or, or Iceland, like what does that actually what does that actually look like? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously we can't go there and film it, so we want to recreate something that's kind of, of close to it. And then there's you know the same for for everything else. Like what what would it look like if we um, froze <laughs> froze a bunch of animals? What would it look like? Um, what does it look like when you farm um, farm crops in space? What does it look like when when you do this or that? And then taking those elements and, and kind of building your own version of them. How do you go about the process of developing the story visually? We would storyboard everything out beforehand, you know, fairly loosely. You know, we want a, a, a shot, you know, in a um, some kind of gallery, we want a shot in some kind of library. And then we'll just start throwing things around um, in, in 3D. If it's all of this stuff is kind of um, set-based, environment-based. Yep. I Personally, I just find it easier to start experimenting with with sets and and those sorts of things in a in an actual 3d space rather than you know sketching them out or, or you know doing a, a top-down plan or, or something like that okay um you know what how big is the space like where do we put the camera all that kind of stuff it's i like to pretend that i'm i'm in a real space and 3d lets me do that okay so you're developing like the 3d models and that roughly Initially, yeah, it's it's super rough. Like the you know the bees are probably spheres initially. It's just it's getting a sense for for scale and the spacing, um, and you know where where is the camera, how close is the camera, all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's you know in in the way that, in the way that you would do a sketch, really really loosely. The three D scenes are built ext- extremely loosely, but just to help us block things out. And do you edit it together after you've got these loose sort of three? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. The the editing is a huge part of the process. Um, you know how how do the shots look in sequence? How do these two completely different shots juxtapose? Um, you know when we put the shots together, is there is there a flow that feels natural? Um, or does it feel clunky? And if it feels clunky, then we need a different type of shot, or maybe we need to insert a shot, or maybe we need to take one away. Yeah. So it's it's very much happening in in tandem. We're generating as as many different. Um, camera angles and play blasts as we can and we're building the story and the animatic and the edit in a a very organic process cool and once you get the edit and it's pretty set up um so you've got like Mm. uh, as we talked before the the inside of the spaceship and all the different elements Mm -hmm. can you describe your process of developing uh your 3d objects um and sort of the approval process that goes with that approval process is um is very much in for those kinds of projects are very much in, internal um you know it's, it's not like we're presenting a range of um of set options to the client and saying which one do you like yeah. where you know it's uh, because we're directing that that project we're making those decisions and showing the client how the project is developing yeah but we're not um we, we, we don't go into that level of granular detail on you know every little object 
So you go out and you source the 3D models and then you retexture them and make them all match together. Some of them are modeled from scratch. Um, some of them are um, sourced. Uh, obviously, there's no, there's not time to, to build every single little thing. And I, you know, I don't believe in in that anyway. Um, in the same way that you know, if you're a set designer uh, building practical sets for, for a film shoot, and you need a table and a chair, you're not going to build the table and the chair yourself. You're going to go and, and find the ones that look the best, and you're going to buy them. Yeah. If we can't find something, we'll just make our own. And where do you usually source your stuff from? Turbo Squid, um, places you know, places like that, standard um, you know, three D model uh, online stores. Cool. What are the key things that you're trying to achieve when you're setting up your shot? I think definitely one of the things we think about most is is um, how cinematic does this look? Is there a sense of of drama or how does this? How do these shots make you feel? when you see them and you know how, how can we adjust the lighting to to enhance that mood yeah. or you know does does changing the lighting completely give us a completely different mood and, and is that what we want yeah it's, it's that kind of iterative evaluation process you know, i find that when i look at the shots without audio it's quite cinematic and it draws you in mm. uh, which is which is very good because often audio uh, supplies a lot of the interest yes and so i want to talk about the animation the flow of the shots yeah do you use procedural animation to create the repeating images and what's the key to rendering those repeating images effectively and you know within a decent time i wasn't quite sure what, what you meant by that what the repeating images what what are you referring to there I'm talking about the bees. Yeah. 30 bees. Oh, yeah. They're all the same laid out. And then books, there's 30 books. And then there's drawers. There's, there's, mil- there's millions of books. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. So, okay, how, okay. how does that I- all work? You know? Yeah. 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 That was um, the, the TEDx 2019 project was definitely an interesting one because it, it was, it's one of the projects where just the, the sheer amount of stuff that we wanted to put into each scene, um, you know, very quickly started breaking. The, the the renders that there's too much to fit into memory a lot of the time yeah um, so it became once we knew what we wanted to, to show um, and and we had locked off a series of kind of final shots or, or a planned outline um, how to um, opt- optimize them in the best way and uh, you know a lot of it is is things like render instances yeah. Um, yeah. and you know cloning things and finding a way to, to get all of that stuff into the least memory footprint possible so that we could you know we can literally render um you know two or three million books in in the library and and all of those bears with all of their all of the little hairs all over their bodies can you tell us about how you animated uh things like the robotic arm and did you use procedural animation the things like the robotic arms they're they're hand hand animated uh more like the drawers opening up uh, yeah, so all of that kind of stuff is is procedural. Yeah, if if there's an automatic way to do something, then I'm all for it. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever can save us the most amount of time. Yeah, um, for sure. And when you're doing that procedural animation, mm-hmm. like how many passes do you sort of do to get it right? And anywhere from you know two or three to I don't know, ten or twenty, we just kind of um, stick with it until it feels right. Is it more like throwing dust in the air or is it more like you, there's a strategy to doing it? What is the method behind trying to get those procedural animations, you know, getting it first time or tenth time? 
Yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit of both. Sometimes it's it's sometimes it comes down to just changing the you know the random seed that's yep. plugging into a some sort of randomizer, um, and other times there are definitely parameters that you can you can tweak purposefully to achieve a certain effect. Yeah. It, it depends on what we're trying to do. What are the most important methods you use to improve your shots from a lighting and texturing point of view? A lot of that is knowing how things like that work in the real world. Um, and, and this is where, you know, I find it very beneficial to have that, um, you know, the onset and the visual effects experience and, and knowing how the lights and the cameras and all of this kind of stuff works. Yep. Um, I, I talk to a lot of artists who have only ever done it inside of a 3D app. Um, you know, they've never had to set up a, a practical set and shoot it with a real camera. Yep. And, and when you when you do understand all, all of that, it is it is much easier to recreate something that feels real, you know, in, in the virtual environment. Where is the stages on the TED project where they give you approval on look and feel? There's a constant communication between where we're up to um, and, and, you know, how the client is feeling about the progress. So they'll see the edit is being continually updated um, and we might have an edit where there's like there's still a few shots that are animatic stage. Maybe there's still a placeholder that's a still image, but we're constantly updating people. You know, this, this is how it's going, taking them on the journey with us. Let's talk about some Pacific shots in detail. Sure. So you created a giant jellyfish tank. Explain how you animated and composited the jellyfish. They're notoriously difficult to animate in a realistic kind of way. We probably ended up spending a lot more time than we really should have on the, on the jellyfish, but we really wanted to to nail that one. So the, the jellyfish is um, is a hundred percent procedural yep. animation, um, which we, you know we're also kind of proud about in a in a stupid technical way that we that we managed to do that and the transparency on the jellyfish you know we threw on something like a um a, a glass shader with a mix of a you know very small amount of, of subsurface scattering yep. or, or something the, the material is not a complex material and was it a cheat did you like duplicate it and then just comp it a whole different areas or did you actually create you know 10 in 3d we, we probably could have, um, but it was it was very very slow to work with. So the, I mean that wasn't so much you know t- a memory requirement or something like that. Yep. Um, it is just to be able to interact with the scene faster. Um, we got some animation that we were happy with, baked it all out to Alembic, and then um, made ten instances of it um, inside the you know inside the the tank. With the bees, which I I'm captivated in. Captivated by the bees. <laughs> so the bees have fur. How did you go about creating the fur for the bees? The hair is done inside Cinema 4D. It's just Cinema 4D native hair. But it's similar to the jellyfish. There's a little bit of a cheat there where it is it is one bee. Um, and then we've duplicated it a whole bunch of times and, and very slightly changed the, you know, the coloration of it and, and offset it on a little bit of an angle each time. Um, yeah. Were you inspired a bit by the Matrix with the drawers, you know, like the guns and the drawers? Uh, and the, <laughs> because they're, they're, it just reminds me a little bit like you've got a million drawers, like a million guns, and then you've got another shot which is like a whole lot of servers and they're often to the affinity. Yeah. I mean, the, the infinity aspect, um, uh, y- yes, that that very famous shot of the matrix where the racks of guns pop out but um the the drawers are actually inspired by um there's a series of photos of i I think it's the smithsonian 
Museum. Yeah. 90% of the, Smo- the Smithsonian Museum's collection is, is not on display. It's stored underground in these these huge corridors full of, of hundreds and hundreds of drawers. And there's this series of photographs where they've opened up all the drawers to show you all of these things, um, you know, animals, um, artworks, like rocks, all in these drawers. And, and we wanted to create something like that. It was like, this is what the basement of every museum in the world looks like. Yeah. And if you're going to stick all of this stuff up in, in an arc in space, how would you do it? You'd probably do it the same way. Just this, this endless loop of, of drawers going round and round this spaceship filled with who knows what. And is there an art to making a white pristine background? Because white, it's basically grey on white, the whole opener with a few little colours. What's the trick to... Uh, yeah, it is a tri- it's a tricky colour palette to, to work with. You have to stop it from, from blowing out and becoming too bright and you have to stop it from becoming too muddy and dirty. The contrast of, of that is um, is difficult to work with. Yep. But it was definitely something that, that we wanted to be able to nail, that, that very kind of sci-fi feel of, you know, the white and the, the, you know, scientific light. Just on the particles that you use inside the babies, so basically you've got like two cells building up mm. and then you've got like the heart beating in the baby and it's translucent. What was your sort of approach to getting that looking real? The baby definitely doesn't look that way when, when you do a raw 3D render. The, the baby was one of the most uh, compositing intensive shots in, in that whole piece um, to, to be able to make it look like that. So there's, there's a lot of passes out of 3D and there's a lot of work in, in layering them up to, you know, to be able to to, to look the way that we wanted it to look because it, we, just, we could not um, nail that, you know, in, in one go inside the render in 3D. That just, you know, wasn't possible. And a lot of the time that's, we, we do try to do that. We try to, you know, nail a shot as much as we can inside 3D so that there's the least amount of compositing to do. Yeah. And this one was just a complete opposite. And you did the particles as compositing and just composited them in to the, over the top. Uh, so some of them are composited in, composited in over the top and some of them are render passes so that they move kind of with the camera motion. And what has been your biggest learning when it comes to creating statues? Because you caught, <laughs> you created statues in like version one and then the next year. Have you got any tips to creating cool looking statues? Um, it, it's very difficult to do, is what I discovered. Without it turning into, like, you know, that cliche that you know, on Instagram, motion designers that just you know grab a human figure and it's 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 got no clothes, it's got no hair, and they they render it out in you know really dopey looking ways. Um, if yeah, if you don't do it properly, it can turn out looking a little bit like that. I'm not sure you gave me a tip. Uh, <laughs> don't do it properly. <laughs> did, did you buy a lot of the models like those? They're all made for that. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us how you develop the design for the skeleton that curves in a circle. The oh, the snake. Yeah. Oh, it's a snake. It's a snake eating its own tail to symbolise infinity. Okay. Yeah, we had had a look at some snake skeletons. The the actually the skull is a I think the skull is a three D scan that we got from a museum, and then the rest of the bones in the snake are like are basically the same thing repeated over and over, but getting smaller. So um, the 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 backbone and the ribs of the snake are, are all kind of cloned along along a spline, and then we loop it around and make it eat its own tail. Cool. And then last of all, the spaceship at the end, mm-hmm. 2001, <laughs> inspired? It's, it's inspired by a lot of things, yeah. I mean, if you... 
it is different to the 2001 Space Odyssey spaceship. We, we tried to to make something that, that looked um, plausible. Like if you were going to build one of these in space, what would it look like? And they, they all, all spaceships in all, you know, all movies and all um, concept art, they end up sort of going towards this idea of, of rings and a central column. Um, but yeah, we, we were trying to avoid kind of making it look exactly like anything else. And uh, Rory in, in Queensland, he, he put a lot of time into developing that um, and some help from um, Ezekiel. Yeah, they, they really did an amazing job kind of detailing that. And what was the biggest challenge on this project? For that one, it was definitely the scale of it. The scale of, you know, the, the scenes, how many objects are in the scenes, um, the number of shots. It was quite a large crew yeah. on it as well. So managing everyone on that, you know, wherever they were around the world. It, it was just, it was massive. It was a massive project. Is there anything that you wanted to do, but you just, couldn't do and you had to leave on the cutting room floor <laughs> um good good question if, if if we had um more memory or more processing power or, or something and maybe we would have made things even bigger but um yeah I, I mean i don't think there was anything that we were super disappointed that we had to had to leave out so did you render in the cloud or did you just do it all on your own computers a little bit of everything, um, some cloud rendering, some uh, local rendering. There's there's a whole bunch of GPUs here, so that would you know we have a decent amount of, of GPU firepower, and sometimes that whoever's working on a shot will will also do a render on their end, and then you know just upload the passes. Do you recommend any particular cloud rendering services? They're all pretty similar. A personal preference is is to rent a, a full-on machine um, or a couple of machines in the cloud rather than sending something to a to a farm. Uh, you know, set them up, put on your own software, um, open up the, the files and render them that way. Um, I think it works out a little bit more cost-effectively uh, because you've, you have the, the control to do, to, you know, to make mistakes, to decide to change something halfway through a render, um, you know, to, to do... Uh, 40 low-res test renders. Yep. You know, you don't have to worry about paying like per frame or per second or anything like that. Cool. Alrighty. Let's move on now to the 2020 uh, TED opener. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your unique collaboration uh, with studios from around the world. Each studio was working on their personal interpretation of, of what reality means to them. Yeah. In the brief, we, we had a whole lot of uh, different, you know, ideas and themes and, and jumping off points to try to make it a little bit easier for them to, to get started. Because, I mean, we know how hard it is to... Um, to start working on on a completely open ended, really wide brief ourselves. So, so we wanted to give them a helping hand. So they chose an area, and then you know they they were able to own that that idea basically. How many seconds each? It was open, so it was uh, we said aim for about ten, and then a lot of them came back kind of in the twelve to fifteen range. It seems to work well, but you weren't worried about consistency uh, with all the different studios. Uh, well, it, it wasn't supposed. It wasn't ever supposed to be consistent. So, I, you know, I don't think it. Part of the the point is to show that reality is the sum of very different experiences. Yeah. So, you know, we have some that are two D animated, some that are three D animated, some that are you know a little bit more kind of painterly. Uh, the, the range of kind of techniques and approaches was something that that we they very much wanted to end up with. Let's give a little shout out to the studios who worked on it. 
I think I can do this uh, alphabetically by memory now. <laughs> uh, BMO from LA, Bullpen um, from, from the US, Mighty Nice, Mix Code in Taiwan, Nerdo in Italy, Oddfellows in the US, Post Office in India, Spilt in Colorado, I think they are, um, and State in LA. I think that was everyone. Who did the sound? And then on audio, we had a combined team of uh, Ambrose Yu as the main composer for the titles, and Sono Sanctus was heading up the team who made all the audio for the various items. Okay. Uh, and yeah, you should check it out. Go to the Masters of Motion website and have a look, like because it's an amazing piece of work. And I think it's very unique to have all those studios work on one project. So I highly recommend that you check it out. It's, it's really cool work. Great, great stuff, Scott. Thanks, Matt. Cool. All right. I think we've covered that pretty thoroughly. I know you're into podcasts. What makes a good podcast and is there any you can recommend? Yeah, I, I love a good podcast. I like to listen to them while I'm working. The main thing for me is, is being able to hear different creatives tell things you know, in their own voice um, and being able to find ones where I can get an insight into how they think and how that comes through in their work. Yeah. A lot of people can can get in a, into a podcast and be like, oh, first I did this and then I did this and then I worked over here. It's like, I, you know, I don't care. I want to know how you think and how that helps you to do what you do. So that's what I look for. Do you think we did that today? <laughs> I hope we did that today. <laughs> I don't know if, if we did. Time will, time will tell. Ones you could recommend? The Collective from Ash, which I think is on pause now, but um, that, that's been a really good one if you can stand the um, the rambling that sometimes goes on. Yep. Um, Animalators, when, when that was a thing, I think that's also on pause. Um, See No Evil is a really, really good one. Yep. Um, School of Motion ones can, can be good. Um, here, here in Australia, there's one called Oz Design Radio, which can, can be good. There's a whole range of different kind of designers um, on that. Uh, you know, the stuff from the guys at RevThink and Masters of Motion. Ha. Yes. Well, uh, we're all a big fan of that. <laughs> what is the most important improvement you've made as a director or creative leader? Knowing when to say no to things, I think, is a, a very underrated skill. You know, knowing when to when to not take on a job. Knowing when, also knowing when to say no to, to a client which can be a very scary thing for, for some people sometimes. Yeah. If you could go back to the start of your career and give yourself some advice, what would it be? Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up um, only figuring out really, really what I wanted to do kind of fairly late in the process. And I, you, know, you look back at that and so you probably do wish you could have got to where you wanted to be sooner. What do you want to work on in the future? A US-based TV show title sequence would be nice. We do do a lot of film title sequences, but not so many TV title sequences. So that's on the to-do list. I think that's a really nice place to leave it. Thanks very much for taking the time and coming in and chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. And don't forget to become part of our jobs network 
if you're looking for a better job in Australia or New Zealand. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.